Hey mom friend, so you are wanting a VBAC but are wondering how to have one. Like what do you need to do and where do you even start? Or maybe you know you want one but your provider is either not supportive and you want to know why even if it's justified or how to work around their lack of support. Well then you're in the right place because I have an amazing episode for you today and I will be talking all about VBACs. I mean, how could we not talk about them since April is World Cesarean Month, right? I mean, (laughs) that would be a crime. And I wanna make sure that you've gotten a well-rounded educational experience for all things cesareans and what options you have to weigh out for your upcoming birth. So I'm here sharing with you what VBACs are, the risk, and what increases your chances of having a successful VBAC. But before we get inside real quick, I want to remind you that this is the last week to take advantage of my 20% off discount code for my nine-week one-on-one private childbirth education course, where I will prepare you for your birth, no matter what option you choose or have, because believe me, after this episode, you will see why taking this class is going to be a helpful tool for your birth and going into postpartum. This discount code is included in my weekly newsletters where you can be updated first on what's going on with the podcast, quick tips and education on birth, pregnancy, postpartum, and the early years of motherhood, and as well as discounts like this. <laughs> to sign up for my weekly newsletter to and to get the discount code, please email partnerships at simplifiedbirthandmotherhood.com. This email is also linked in the description of this podcast. Go ahead and email that to sign up and while you're at it, leave me a message just telling me what you are encouraged by or maybe some of the things that have been shared in our chats that you found to be very helpful or encouraged by or go to my website, which is also linked in the descriptions of this episode to register today. But if you've been joining in our chats and still aren't sure if this is right for you, or even if you need a childbirth education class, or maybe you think it's going to take so much time and it's going to be very time consuming, and there's no way that you can think of it can possibly fit it into your schedule. Or maybe you're like, whoa, 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 like take me out on a date first, right? <laughs> well, come meet me. Come sit with me for free. I offer a one hour free consultation for you to safely vent all your concerns, ask all the questions you need to take the leap of faith and begin strengthening your mom gut with me. To book your time slot, click the website link in the description of this episode or any others that you might have listened to in the past or just email me at cbecoaching at simplifybirthandmotherhood.com saying, I'm in. Now that we are all up to date, we can totally get started. I'll see you inside. Hey mama, welcome to Simplify Birth and Motherhood. I am Amanda. I am a wife and mom of four. I have had a hospital birth, unexpected C-section, a few home births, and now I'm a birth advocate, childbirth educator, and your cheerleader in the toughest hood of them all, motherhood. Do you wish you knew what options were available to you when becoming a new mom or adding more to the mix? Are you ready to nurture and build up your mom gut so you can be more confident, educated, and bold? In this podcast, you will begin to understand, find support, and turn knowledge into power through education and resources for pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum, and for the early years of motherhood. 
If you are ready to get clarity to empower your birth and motherhood journey, then throw up your unbrushed hair, hike up your high-waisted pants because sister, (laughs) I know you are wearing them. Put the baby in the ergo and let's start feeding our God-given mom guts. See you inside. Okay, let's get started. All right, so today is a bit of a doozy. I know I say that every single time, mom, but seriously, there's so much that we talk about in our sessions that to me, when I look at the research and when I figure out like, okay, this is what I definitely want you to know, I think like, oh man, it could be a lot of information to intake. Hopefully this information, whatever you take from it, gives you that boost of confidence or to kind of back you up in the face of pushback from others. Only because I think people want you to do the right thing. People want the safety. They want to make sure that you and mom are safe. So when they think of sometimes the V-backs, they think of the risk and the safety of it for both mom and baby. And oftentimes a lot of people don't really know what those are. So the information that I'm sharing with you is for you to just consider and to definitely weigh out, process all of it, and then go from there. Because it's a lot. (laughs) I'm not going to lie about that. It's going to be a lot of information, but also too, it's definitely something that one of those things that you definitely have to consider the risks and the benefits, and you have to make a choice based off of what you feel comfortable with. So VBACs. VBACs just stand for vaginal birth after cesarean, and it is considered a safe alternative than having a repeat cesarean. And I'll tell you why here in this episode. There are a lot of abbreviations that are associated with deliveries after cesareans like VBAC or VBA2C, VBA3C. This just means that you've had about two, three, four, which are very rare, of cesareans before the attempt of a vaginal birth or having an actual vaginal birth. We have HBAC, which means home birth after cesarean. I fall into that category. A TOLAC, so T-O-L-A-C. This means a trial of labor after cesarean. This is you attempting to do a VBAC. So you haven't had one yet, but you're attempting to do one. You're attempting to do one in your current pregnancy or birth. There is an ERCB, which is an elective plan repeat cesarean birth, which means you're choosing to have a planned cesarean after the one you previously had. That can be for a lot of reasons, just because every pregnancy is different. There is a CBAC. This is a cesarean birth after a cesarean birth, which means a birth that was a cesarean before and then ended in a cesarean again, which helps the term failed VBAC not to be so negative. We see this type of situation happen when moms are planning to have that natural birth or are having plan on having some type of interventions during their births, but then again, it ends in another C-section. So VBACs are considered safer than repeat cesareans for pregnancies and also for future pregnancies. This is due to the uterine scar opening, sometimes emergency removal of the uterus, which is a hysterectomy, the risk for the placenta to attach to the uterine scar and possibly over the opening of the cervix. This is called placenta previa continual pain at the incision site or pelvic area. So cesareans have a chance of all these things. So every time there's a repeat cesarean happening, it only increases your chances for these things to happen. So is a VBAC possible even if you've had one or two cesareans? Well, let's see, because there are some factors that come into play that need to be considered if you are a good candidate or not. So how do we make sure that we are a good candidate or 
maybe you've been told once a C-section, always a C-section. I'm sure you probably have heard that term be thrown around, but even that on its own, that term is really not what was it was intended to be. And the context of how it was said was a term that was said in 1916 by a doctor who made the statement to not have the argument against a VBAC, but to stress that the, once the operation had been done, it would most likely be repeated again by the provider. So really, it was they were talking to the provider because back in those days, if a C-section was performed and it didn't cause maternal death, then for sure the next one would. So that's really where that term comes from. So it wasn't necessarily for the mom to think just because you've had one, you're going to have one again. It was as a warning to doctors more so as a precaution and as a reminder for women. So that term aside, oftentimes incisions play a part of it. Most incisions that were done back in the day were done in a, as what they call a classical incision on the outside of mom's abdomen and also on the uterus, which was done vertically. This is the important part. They are considering the risk of the incision and likelihood of a uterine rupture happening because of the womb incision. So it is actually the scar on the uterus, not on the skin that matters. So you may have a visible scar of a horizontal cut that you see on the outside. That is what doesn't matter. What actually matters is the cut that was made on the inside. And back then they would do it the classical way. So vertically from top to bottom. But this classical way of the incision was more popular in the 20s to the 50s. And the only time that we see it now, which is very rare and not common, is when the doctor will make this type of incision for reasons like special cases like baby was transverse, meaning they were sideways, or baby needed to be born prematurely. Now, I will say this, sometimes the way that the incision is cut for cesareans really just depends on the style of the obstetrician, because sometimes they do this classical cut on the inside, but again, on the outside, bikini line, still horizontal, those type of things. But again, we are talking about the incision that was made on the actual womb or uterus. This classical incision actually is been known to weaken the uterus so much that it makes natural birth more risky. So real quick, imagine what your body is doing naturally during natural labor. Your body is producing these very powerful contractions and it with it its own natural ability for it to be strong. Imagine what contractions with Pitocin could do. I mean, when you think about Pitocin, something that we will be talking about here in the near future, is that Pitocin, what it does is it causes these very strong contractions to happen. There's no buildup, there's no really calm down time, and the rest period in between these Pitocin-induced contractions are very few and far between. So imagine what our body is doing naturally versus what the Pitocin is doing. So you can imagine with knowing the fact that with the classical incision and it weakening the uterus, even with natural birth, it makes it more risky. So imagine what the Pitocin is doing and how much more of a risk raises when you do have the Pitocin. So definitely something to think about and to kind of, you know, go down the rabbit hole with. But 
Today, most incisions from the previous cesareans are done, like I said, in a low transverse. And the reason why they do that along the bikini line is for aesthetic reasons. And where they do it actually makes VBAC safe. So what they're doing is they're kind of setting moms up for the safety of VBACs. Not to say that it completely redeems the fact that you've had a cesarean, but if you are not sure what type of incision was made on you internally, what you can do is you can actually request for the operation report from the hospital that you had it in from from the records. And that will actually show all of that before you get pregnant again you can ask for these things which would be kind of a wise thing to do because if you plan on having more kids even if you've never had a cesarean but know that that could possibly happen these are things that we need to consider is are we going to have more kids is this something that we are going to do in the future and if so then we need to definitely weigh out the risk and the benefits of an actual cesarean and these are some of the things that doctors need to be making more aware is that if we do a cesarean these are the risks for your future pregnancies so if you've already had one and don't know what type of incision that you have internally you can find out these things are totally made available you can request these things from the hospital And this is something that you can do during your current prenatal period or even way before you have children. That way you guys, your family can kind of weigh out the cost as to if this is something that you are, a VBAC is something that you are wanting to do in the future. But also note too, that if you do plan on switching providers because you don't think that your current OB, like you know for sure that they're not supportive of VBACs or maybe the hospital that you're having a VBAC at is not very VBAC friendly because they've made it very clear to you at your recovery that this is something they do not support or even if you are changing doctors or you're changing birth environments going from a hospital to birth center to home birth no matter what situation it actually would be very wise for you to get all those medical records because for the sake of the new provider looking over it and seeing what the chances of your successful of a VBAC and what type of things that they can suggest whether they are going to be on board with it these are definitely things to get even in those cases as well. Okay, so the other thing to consider if you wanna be a good candidate or wanna know if you're going to be a good candidate for a VBAC is how many cesareans you've actually have had previously. So this is where those abbreviations like VBA2C, VBA3C, even VBA4C are used. But if you only had one surgery before your current pregnancy and the internal incision is good to go, then you really should have no problem with a TOLAC, which is a trial of labor after cesarean, and a possible successful BBAC. All studies are showing that this already increases your chances of having a successful and safe VBAC with just one incision, low transverse, those types of things. It's when you start hitting these two after cesareans or three, for cesareans and it's not to say that a provider won't do those things but the more numbers that you have before the attempt for the VBAC I'm in all honesty it's really going to vary on the provider and you have to find somebody who's willing to do it even some midwives are not willing to do those things it really just is based off of how comfortable they are and so the more you do them the less and less chances of you being able to be a good candidate for a VBAC based off that problem alone, the incision alone, is something that they, all doctors, all providers, 
all consider. So just know that the more numbers you have or the higher the number, you're looking a little bit further and further away from that. Not because you can't, because people do it. People have had four cesareans and then had a vaginal birth. I mean, it's not to say that it's impossible, but definitely the risk is a little bit more higher as those things go. And this is why this is the beauty of birth. This is why people still should be informed about, about their decisions, but also should be able to make the right or should be able to have the autonomy in their choice on whether or not they want to attempt to do this. So this is kind of the beauty of the situation, but just this is the normal. <laughs> Some people don't want to take on the risk to do that. But if you've had one, it's low transverse on the inside, you should be good to go. Because when the provider looks at that information and sees that you have opened up that scar more than once, they know that every time it's been opened, it actually has weakened that uterine scar every single time. And the thing with scar tissue in general is that it acts like a glue to the repairing of the muscle tissue, the fascial damage, which is happening during a C-section. It doesn't have much elasticity. So it's almost like a cement for the wound area, but the strength of it is working at a capacity maybe up to about 70%. So with each and every time this scar tissue is being opened or broken apart or destroyed via surgery, rather than it being built up, it's actually compromising it. So therefore it's weakening that glue, which is why after surgery, they really encourage you to implement movement slowly over time because the tissue that your body's creating to heal itself can actually be strengthened with mobilization, but it also breaks up that scar tissue that can lead to pain at the incision site, but it also improves the soft tissue function and increases the range of motion. So it almost like helps with the elasticity of it. This is why physical therapy is recommended for all types of surgeries, as well as nutrition that focus on healing this wound and broken tissue that increases the natural production of collagen, massage at the scar site as a healing as can also be done to help with this. So it's almost like what they're recommending you for recovery, even after cesarean, I know some hospitals and some providers and what some people recall is that they want you to be moving not necessarily immediately after but within a certain amount of window of time they want you kind of moving from you know taking a few steps to a chair from your bed or walking around those types of things they are doing those things because it's almost like they're setting you up in recovery to increase your chances of a VBAC or they are telling you Make sure you are moving, make sure you're getting up. Also not to, you know, increase blood clotting and things like that in your legs, but just almost as like a recovery so that in the future you can have a VBAC. So some hospitals and some providers will do that. But even on your own outside of say your postpartum period of six weeks of time, it still is a good recommendation to massage those areas, to break up that scar tissue, to you know, spread out that fascia, all those types of things. And some doctors might still consider you a candidate if you've had other vaginal births with cesareans and even might take you on for a VBAC if you've had two cesareans. But this is, again, a case by case based on the doctor and how comfortable they feel to take you on and what the possible reasons were for your last C-sections and the risk if it's low or not, but anything past two cesareans is 
like I said, a little too risky for a lot of doctors and providers to take on. Another contributing factor of whether or not you are a good candidate is if your actual hospital is equipped for a VBAC or if your doctor is willing to do the VBAC. So sometimes it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with is your hospital equipped to do that? So hospitals that say they do not permit or cannot permit a VBAC mom is usually an issue of not having the staff that's available in case the birth has to switch to an emergency C-section or there is an emergency situation that happens in the middle of your VBAC. But studies are showing that most of the times mom have repeat cesareans by choice, it is because the facility doesn't offer the option for a VBAC. So this is actually pretty common when their provider is saying, nope, we don't do it, or sorry, our facility is not equipped to be able to service you in case of an emergency situation. This would include like on-call anesthesiologists, NICUs, all those types of things. Sometimes they just, some facilities don't. My actual local hospital does not have a NICU. So if something were to happen, they would not be able, they would have to transfer my baby or they would have to transfer me in those situations. So sometimes this is not even an option for, which is why I say that if you have a doctor that is not willing to do VBAC or even if they're advising you against a VBAC with no legitimate reason, you do have a right to a second opinion or you can go somewhere else. And sometimes these other providers or these other hospitals might give you the same answer based on the fact that they're not equipped to do one. Maybe they are. But sometimes you might get the same answer as no, we're not going to do one or no, we're not taking you on. But you do have a right to a second opinion and you do, you can go somewhere else where they are equipped or maybe you have multiple options of hospitals. Find a hospital that is equipped to do one. So don't just settle on that particular hospital. If you have your heart set on there, then that's a different story. But go see other hospitals that are within a certain radius of your home or maybe go see if there's another hospital on the other side of town that would be willing or another provider. This is why this interviewing process and interviewing multiple doctors and researching multiple hospitals in your area to see what that is is okay and it would be totally worth your time. Other factors that are worth mentioning, and I will only mention a few because there's a whole list of them, meaning they show no impact risk on the uterine incision separating and they do increase the chances of VBAC. One would be a previous breech birth, fetal distress, failure to progress, CPD, or a small pelvis. This topic within itself, because this is, is Another topic to talk about because this is actually really rare, especially in this modern day and age. And the way it's diagnosed is really hit and miss because we know that in labor, we can change positions and move in ways that create more space in the pelvis. You just have to know how. Another would be a low transverse inner uterine incision, or if you have no idea what the incision is on the interuterine part. So if you even have a vertical incision on top, which is very rare, but if you even if you do, it's again, it goes back to what is the incision on the womb? That is what really matters. But if you don't know, then sometimes that has no risk. But again, you can know by requesting the records from the hospital that you had the surgery at. Things that in your pregnancy that have no elevated risk or impact, if you've been told your baby is, quote, big, okay, and this is usually done by ultrasounds, 
Ultrasounds are not 100% accurate. We, that is also another topic in Excel. Like guys, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, and I know that there are so many other things that we could talk about and that we are referencing to sometimes in our chats because there's just so much information out there and things that we need to know and understand as well as to just help and give us comfort and give us confidence. So ultrasounds is one of them. And they are actually known to be off by a few pounds, a few weeks, those types of things. And another thing is if you're healthy before or during your pregnancy, that also increases your chances of having a successful back. short intervals of pregnancies. This is widely debatable. And the only reason why I put this as having no impact or elevated risk is because one, I am a short interval pregnancy mom. My children are about 15 months apart. And one of the things that they do say after your surgery is don't get pregnant with between 18 and 24 months. But the reasons why this is a little bit debatable and why I kind of put this in here is because some of the research that I've read, again, I'm not particularly a doctor or a midwife or anything like that. So you can just take this kind of as like a grain of salt, or if this applies to you, you can do more research on this. But some of the things that I had to consider with this too, and the reason why I know some of it is because I had to figure this out. I had to look it up. I had to figure out, okay, is this really safe with me with this one factor alone, the short interval of pregnancies. So there are multiple reasons why, again, this is a risk and why it might not potentially be an impact for you in your next pregnancy or your current pregnancies. Because even if you have gotten pregnant, say you're nine months into your postpartum, eight months, you end up getting pregnant, okay? What they worry about is the rate or the weight that you are gaining as you are pregnant and the amount of pressure from the growth of baby that is being applied to the freshly wounded uterine scar over time. So with the short intervals of pregnancy, sometimes when we get pregnant, it's like it's going to be about a year. It's going to be over. It's going to be within that range of 18 to 24 months when I'm going to be having another baby. So sometimes that's the reason why there is no elevated risk because that duration of time between the time you get pregnant and the time you actually have your baby, that weight or that pressure is not being applied all at once it's almost, it's being applied like little over time. And so by the time you have your baby, it is within that safe window. So sometimes that's not a problem. And sometimes it is, it just depends. It's a case by case situation. But that's the reason why I put this in here as far as like the no impact or doesn't elevate your risk because it's debatable. But having a VBAC at home or a birth center also too does not have any higher risk than you were to have at the hospital. There's statistics and research shows that there is no higher risk in these situations. But of course, American College of Gynecologists says that this is a contradiction. But what they also say is that a VBAC, they consider safe environments as hospital and birth centers. But we've learned from some of our other chats about birth environments that essentially they are saying that home births are safe because home births and birth centers are really no different from each other. It's just places. It's in a different place. It's not in your home. It's in somewhere else. So, because there's really nothing that a birth center can't offer that a home birth can't. But the studies do show that there is 
the risk is no greater than the hospital. But what we are seeing, which is a fact based off of trends, and what we see is that there is a great satisfaction for moms who do want to attempt to have a VBAC, who do decide to do it in a birth center or a home birth. There is a great, there is a good outcome. They are not all poor, and it does not lean every single time to a poor outcome. We see a lot of moms who are having successful VBACs. I've had one. I know dozens of people who have had one. I know dozens of people who have had two cesareans and had a home birth and ended up being successful. I know some people, I read stories where they've had four (laughs) cesareans and they've had really great outcomes in these situations. So it's not to gaslight that and we are not trying to make it sound like that that doesn't exist because there are successful VBACs with birth centers and home births. So not to say that that's not there because it is. So what is everybody so worried about? Why is your provider worried about this? Why is it all of a sudden that your provider is backtracking on their support for your VBAC? What are they worried about? (laughs) Why do some offer it? Why do some even give mom another option but a repeat? Another thing that we're wondering is why are they wanting to induce so early at 39 to 40 weeks if labor has not started? Well, the main thing that they worry about is the chance of uterine rupture. A uterine rupture is when the uterine wall breaks open or tears open. And this is due to pressure. This can be pressure from the baby or from contractions. And oftentimes when this happens, it is a very serious thing. I mean, it has a potential to have neonatal mortality, maternal mortality, morbidity, uh, possibly a hysterectomy. I mean, all those types of things are ha- can possibly happen in situations like this. Those can be the outcomes and the results. But there are about two types of uterine ruptures. One is the complete rupture. So pretty self-explanatory in itself. But this is where the tear goes through all the layers of the uterine wall. So this is the big one. This is the one that requires immediate prompt emergency response because this is part of the baby, the amniotic fluid, and the umbilical cord that can slip into the membrane that forms the abdominal cavity. When this happens, this takes oxygen away from baby, thus leading to brain damage or possible death. Does this happen? Yes. But you will see that it does not happen very often. The second one is a partial rupture. This is where the scar partially opens, but doesn't separate, and the outer layer of the uterus is still intact. This is what they sometimes called a dehiscence. So sometimes they consider this to be a rupture, and unlike a complete rupture, there are really no signs showing that this has happened or it is currently happening whether during pregnancy or labor. It can also lead to a rupture, so it could start and then up turning into a complete rupture. There is a potential for that with this, but the body heals over time. So if this does happen, the body will eventually heal this up. And there's really no telling if this has happened or will happen because they really don't know unless they go in and do an exploration or they go in and do a repeat cesarean. And that's when they usually find out. But these ruptures just also don't happen during labor. They happen and can happen at any point during your pregnancy. So a repeat cesarean 
does not lessen your risk in future pregnancies and birth of a uterine rupture. I hope that makes sense because this can happen no matter what. Even if you've never had a cesarean, I mean, for first time moms, this is really low, almost kind of like it will never happen because of how rare it is. But for those of us who have had one, doesn't matter. You can have a uterine rupture before labor even starts. But the more vaginal deliveries after cesareans have been proven to reduce the risk of uterine rupture. And some of the signs of an actual uterine rupture are excessive vaginal bleeding. This is different from a hemorrhage. They sometimes can look very similar, but this is why they have to get down to the root of the problem. Pain in between contractions that is sudden and different from any pain from normal birth and contractions. This is again why the epidural is not necessarily recommended in cases like this because you're not going to feel anything. If something were to happen, you're not going to be able to feel the pain that is different from any other pain because you're numbed from the bottom down. I mean, so this is why we should be using this with caution. But if also too, if contractions become slow or not as intense, so whether or not they've started, they're going at a good rate, and then they just start slowing down and not obviously becoming stronger as time goes on. Abnormal abdomen pain or bulging in the pubic bone. This may be because a baby is coming through the tear and into that space and not through the birth canal. So sometimes that can be happened. So a visible sign, sometimes rapid heart rate, blood pressure, or shock in mom, or fetal heart rate is abnormal or is dropping or rising. This would be the most reliable sign. This is when there is a prolonged deceleration of baby's heartbeat. They call this bradycardia, which means that the baby's heartbeat has decreased for several minutes with no improvement when mom has problem solved on her own by changing position. And there really is a difference between an actual uterine rupture and like I said, a dehiscence. So pretty serious stuff. Uterine rupture is very serious. So what is the rate of this happening to you? Well, it definitely is below 1%. We're talking about 0.4%. So one out of 250 people. (laughs) So the risk is still low, even if you had a cesarean in the past. And it's even lower if you're a first time mom, almost like it's never going to happen to you. But even with this rate being at 0.4%, just imagine this, consider the statistics on this you are more likely to have a cord prolapse than this happening to you. And it's just as close as if you were to be dating a millionaire. But this risk increases when you add in the surgeries, the more cesareans. So this is what increases your risk, is the amount of repeat cesareans you had. So if you are a first-time mom, or you are gonna have a cesarean again after having another one, you're only increasing your chances. It may be, sounds like the better option, and sometimes it is. Sometimes there are reasons why we need to do this. And those vary from person to person, pregnancies to pregnancies. But you would think that a repeat cesarean is safer or is going to lessen your risk when really it doesn't because that actually... (laughs) 
increases the chances of the uterine rupture. This is why after two, it's unlikely for your provider to take you on. It's not to say you can't, like I said, but because the risks increase from 1% to about 3.6%, and you are more at risk of having a uterine rupture than a first-time mom because there's no scar there, and it's the scar on the uterus versus an unscarred uterus. And studies show that if you have one low vertical incision, meaning hasn't been reopened, and you've had a vaginal birth, so even adding the vaginal birth to that acts as a protectant, almost like it acts like it's protective of us for those reasons, but also medical interventions. Medical interventions have also been proven to increase the risk of uterine rupture. This would include Pitocin, Prostagylins, epidural or other inducement options, and that goes up to about 6%. So when you pack it on, more repeats, interventions, those types of things, you're you're increasing your risk. And we see that with the studies. And that's the thing about the research. Whatever research they have actually have done on uterine ruptures are done with women who had some type of inducement measure, or they've had the mixed cocktail of Pitocin and the epidural and the outcomes show that this is where the risk is. So unfortunately, there's not really a lot of research out there showing that a mom who's had nothing no epidural, no Pitocin has not been induced, has not been given prostaglins to soften the cervix because their cervix was hard and long. There's really not a lot of research out there showing that if we don't have this, what are the risks then? They're showing that the uterine rupture has happened in cases where moms have had this. So this is kind of the double-edged side of the sore that's not so great. But again, we see that even with this risk or how we got that below 1%, oftentimes there is some type of medical intervention to show that if it was used, the medical intervention was used, that it increased by up to 6%. So if you're wanting to use any induction methods or any of those things like the epidural, it should be used with caution because some of these things also do have high numbers of causing non-assuring fetal heart rates and the need for forceps or the need of other measures like Pitocin. So because of that, even just the heart rate alone, sometimes our baby is having these non-assuring heart rates, not because we're actually having a uterine rupture. It's because our baby is responding to some of these measures that are not setting them up for success or causing these issues. So sometimes these unnecessary means actually create the problem and more so solve them. That's kind of the double-edged sword when having a baby in some of these environments. So what can increase your chances of having a VBAC? You're probably thinking, well, I've already had one or I've already had two. So, you know, what can I do to increase my chances? Well, some things you will need to do or that you can do is being active in your prenatal period. You're going to want to, as soon as you find out, to find supportive care. 
This means choosing a provider or a place that has a positive view on VBAC, finding out what your current provider views are about VBAC, what their protocols and policies are for this VBAC attempt. This will help you learn early on if there is an agreement or support for your decision for a TOLAC or things like that. If you are not sure of any of this, then ask if at any point you find that your provider is not allowing you, quote, to have a VBAC, so meaning you are being refused or a VBAC, my recommendation would be that you find one who will because I'd rather you be with a provider who is not only supportive of your decision, but also who's skilled to do so. Or when you find out your provider is not showing signs of support of your VBAC or the day you go into labor, another doctor is attending your birth because there is a very high chance. This is something that I've tried to always make clear to everyone when I'm talking to moms about this is I know you probably love your provider and they probably will be there, especially if you're planning on inducing. They're gonna be there because they're planning to be there. Inducement with Pitocin is a way for them to plan to be there. But oftentimes when we go into labor spontaneously, sometimes a provider is not there. And sometimes we think that the one we're working with, we know that they're supportive, but if they're not there, meaning they're not on call or they're not there, it's not their shift, then you could get a provider that does not have that same view, that is not very supportive of that. But in those cases, if you do find that another doctor is a 10-year labor and they're not supportive of your decision, you have a right to change providers. You have a right to ask for a second opinion. But also too, make sure that your wishes for a VBAC are written in your medical notes because whoever does attend your birth is going to look at that, but they are also obligated to support your choice for a VBAC. And you have a right to assert these wishes to them because whether it's your doctor or not, they are actually agreeing to take you on once you are in labor. I mean, they show up and they're there, but you can also start by visiting ICANN. They have a VBAC policy database, which I also have linked in this episode for you. So that way you can look to see, I mean, it has every U.S. hospital's official and unofficial views about VBAC because sometimes where you have your VBAC really matters. And we do see a lot of birth stories ending with, well, I didn't really want to do this, but because I was already there at the hospital or because my provider or the doctor who was there was doing this and I just felt like I really had no choice that I had to do it. So we want to make sure that we are crossing our T's and dotting our I's on this. But with even that, not even just the fact of they don't have that same supportive view, but also too because of the interventions we will see. And oftentimes if we don't want to have the interventions or we are trying to limit that, we see sometimes moms who are choosing birth options like a birth center and a home birth. But it is something I have to know in this episode as well as I have mentioned in other episodes. If you have not listened to those, this is probably going to be a nice little tidbit that I've shared in the past, but we know that a birth center can't offer us anything different than a home birth can't. So the risk is still there because of the scar, but you do have a chance of having a successful VBAC just on this factor alone. Not to say that it's guaranteed, but because of the medical interventions that are going to be not there or the intervening and things like that is going to be kept at a minimum. The studies that have been done for these birth environments and a VBAC show that the chances of a uterine rupture don't increase more than the hospital. It doesn't also 
eliminate the risk because the risk is still there. And usually if a uterine rupture does happen, it is doesn't necessarily have a very good outcome. So that is the risk. But again, we are talking about something that happens below 1%. So not to say that this is going to happen or that it won't happen. I We do not have the ability to determine that. But again, it does not increase the chances of it happening in more so in these different environments. And as we have talked in the past, more so in our birth environment chats, is that in these situations, midwives are trained, professionally trained to determine beforehand if they want to take you on as a VBAC. If they want to take you on knowing that you are attempting a VBAC and things like that, they are professionally trained to look at what your information, your history is, the surgery, the past surgery, those things. They are trained to do that. But they are also professionally trained to look for red flags beforehand, just like your doctor. Your doctor is also, an OB is also trained to look at those red flags. And so with midwives in these birth center and home birth situations, they too are also trained to look at the red flags in your pregnancy as well as during labor. And what they will do is they will attend to those red flags beforehand, before it gets to a point where there literally is no time. There is no time. And so they will take those necessary steps to get you to the hospital for this emergency, for this change of events. So there is still a backup arrangement when it comes to birth centers and home births. This is why a lot of times we recommend birth birth centers in particular to be a little bit closer to the hospital. And depending on where you're at, sometimes people live down the street from hospitals. I mean, this happens. So how that sits with people varies from person to person. This is why VBAC moms attempt to do one in the hospital because if things do end up going south, the care is available for them right away. But as we are learning, sometimes it's the over-treatment or the unnecessary uses of resources that cause more of the problem than solve them. And in these birth environments and home birth environments, we're not seeing a lot of that because mom is problem solving on her own, but also to the medical interventions and the intervening is kept down to a minimal, which ends up being proven to be a benefit for moms who are attempting a VBAC. Another thing that you're going to want to do, especially in your prenatal period, is you're going to want to get familiar with your rights. What are they and how to have them protected? Just because you're pregnant or a parent, you still have rights to a second opinion and right to refuse medical treatment. This would also include cesarean. And to give informed consent, this might require contacting a lawyer beforehand just in case there's a pressure or threat given to you that violate these rights. So know what your rights are, not even just during for during your labor and into your postpartum, but also how to express and assert your rights during pregnancy and things like that. Those are also very important to learn and to know how to do. Also, take a childbirth education class that focuses on VBAC and the tools and techniques you can use to have a successful VBAC. This is what I offer in my nine-week one-on-one childbirth education course. We go over all the things that increase your chances for a VBAC, which means I help prepare you for one. I teach you all the different techniques, 
tools, educate you on all the information to be able to set you up to plan for a successful VBAC. Because like I said, VBAC, if you're planning on having one, you need to have a plan in place. It helps you, these childbirth education courses, including mine, help you create a plan for a successful VBAC. And one of the things that I know that appeal to a lot of people when it comes to particularly my childbirth education course is that we prepare your mind mentally. So preparing mentally for VBAC. Sometimes the rate of success for VBAC has a lot to do with your belief in your own capabilities because we are fearful of birth itself or our, your confidence in your birth ability has been shattered or that you believe that you just won't succeed because you tried in the past. It didn't work out because even with a cesarean, I don't think Oftentimes we plan on having a cesarean unless there is a medical reason why we need to. And that is all assessed and processed and examined and weighed out with your provider beforehand. Because I will continue to say and have said it in the past is that sometimes we need these cesarean things. But sometimes we are not planning to have cesarean. Sometimes we are just planning to have a normal medicalized birth, which is fine because that fits us. That makes us feel safe and comfortable. And that is the choice that we make for ourselves. And that's fine. But sometimes we're planning on having a natural birth or we want to go as long as we can. And so sometimes we don't even plan to do that. And so we attempt to do it and we think because we could not get the birth we wanted, we failed. And one thing is we talk about the word failure. We failed. That is one thing we need to examine and kind of deconstruct and learn how to build up that perception, learn how to build it up in the right way. But our idea that we will succeed has been shattered. And we just need to believe that we do have a right to a vaginal birth. Every pregnancy and birth is different. And just because one happened the way it did doesn't mean it will happen like that before. So this is why a lot of times when we have cesareans because of failure to progress, baby's not in the right position, those yada, 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 those types of things, those happen in that pregnancy does not necessarily mean that we are going to have that again next time. So that is not going to determine that we should have a repeat cesarean. That does not determine that. And so, but always keeping in mind too, why we are doing what we are doing. So when we do get the disapproval of others of this choice, we are firm and solid in our reasoning to do it. So knowing our why. So this takes a lot of mental preparing for those things. So we need to be preparing mentally for a VBAC. Also, we're going to want to be active, physically active. This means taking walks, practicing different birth positions, learning how to do proper breathing techniques because some of what we do actively physically in our pregnancy does help create space for baby and uses gravity to help baby to get into the position that they need to get into. Get chiropractor or acupressure care. This really is encouraged during pregnancy because it releases tension and again, creates space for baby. So if you have the opportunity to do this, chiropractic care has been shown to improve the chances of you having a successful feedback. This is one of the things that they recommend completely to start doing as soon as you can. But acupressure is good because it presses on different 
pain points, different nerves, different points in our body that are connected to these areas that are helping our uterus, helping our cervix, things like that. And it's actually a pretty cool thing to do considering these acupressure therapists are really good about hitting those little tiny spots that we just would never known to that it would have worked, but it does. So definitely consider taking that during your pregnancy. But in labor, have words of affirmation. This helps us in our why and our believe in our God-given abilities during our VBAC. Positive support, positive birth perspectives, those types of things. Words of affirmation or encouragement really help us to stay focused and to know and believe in ourselves that we can do it. Have a great support team that believes and supports you in your choice which means you may want to hire a doula. They are great for successful VBAC success and hi- or hire a midwife over an OB or work with an OB rather than a midwife. Work with a team that makes you feel safe, supported, and comfortable. Try to avoid augmentation, inducement, and any plain blockers. So medical interventions. So if you want to use them, like I've mentioned before, use them with caution. How you do that can be learned also in my class and through another or other childbirth education classes, I hope. But definitely through my class, you will learn how to avoid them. What are some of the things that we have alternatively for you that could work so much better with your body and with your baby and not necessarily work against you and put you in a very high risk situation. Stay mobile during labor. If you have an epidural, stay mobile. walking, pelvic movements, those types of things. If you have the epidural, you still can stay mobile, but again, you have to know how, and I will teach you. Try different positions, squatting, all fours, child's pose, use the birth ball, upright positions. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Staying nourished, eating and drinking. Studies show that this is completely safe and there is no long-term or short-term risk with eating and drinking. So many things that we can just go through to let you have a successful VBAC. And this is just a tip of the iceberg. And in my classes, I teach you the whole kit and caboodle, the whole enchilada, sister. So these are just a few things. And when you work with me, you learn how to do them too. So you're not just doing them alone. Well, mama, this is all I have for you today about VBACs and things you can do to help you have a successful VBAC. If you are ready to rock your VBAC without fear and in confidence, join me in my one-on-one private childbirth education course that I've mentioned multiple times and love for you to take with me. Take advantage of the discount code that I have for you. It's 20% off as a thank you to get this amazing course at a discounted price. This offer is ending this week, so you will definitely not want to miss it. Well, I'll be ending our chat on that note and I will see you next time. Hi again. Thank you so much for listening to this great episode. If you had learned something today, please make sure you leave a review in Apple Podcasts and share with another mom friend. Also pop on over to our private Facebook group, sign up for our email list and connect with me on social media, which are all linked in the description of this podcast. I can't wait to see you over there and connect with you. Now go listen to your mom gut because wisdom will guide you and chances are it won't let you down. Until next time, cheers.